just love the freedom that being a queer parent brings. It's having that freedom to paint with all those different colours and explore all those roles and be the fullest parent for my child that I can be. I think it's been true for for a very long time. And let's not forget that just because it wasn't in plain sight, queer people have parented for a very, very long time. Um, It just may not have been as visible. Hi, I'm Adam. Hello, I'm Joe. Welcome to Pride and Progress, a podcast which amplifies the voices of LGBT plus educators and allies. In each episode, we're joined by a variety of guests to discuss how we can collectively reimagine our educational spaces as LGBT plus inclusive. Join us as we learn, unlearn and celebrate the power of diversity. Hello friends and welcome to Pride and Progress. This week we are welcoming three guests to the show as we discuss the topic of LGBT plus parents and carers. Our first guest is Claire Neves, who is a Bristol-based educator. Claire's pronouns are she, her, and she has worked across primary, secondary and special education, currently working across a local multi-academy trust leading on inclusion. She is one of the founding members of Bristol Queer Educators and a trustee of the Maternity Teacher Paternity Teacher Project. And in other exciting news, Claire got married this week. So Claire, a huge congratulations and welcome to the show. How was the big day? Hi, thank you. Um, it was lovely. Yeah, it was um, very small, just us and two witnesses. And we spent the day doing all the things we love doing in Bristol. So mainly hanging out in coffee shops and eating cake. Um which was on a par with the getting married bit, actually. That sounds perfect. A day full of cake sounds blissful. Congratulations, Claire. So glad you could join us. Our next guest is Peter Jardim-White, whose pronouns are he, him. Peter is a secondary drama teacher at an independent school in the East Midlands, who is currently on adoption leave. Peter and his husband are in the placement stage of their adoption process. Their five-year-old son moved in with them just around two months ago. Now, Peter, I recently did a day of supply teaching in a classroom full of five-year-olds. They're pretty high energy, right? How's that going? <laughs> yes, very, very high energy. It's um, frankly exhausting, uh, but <laughs> especially as someone who uh, I'm used to being around teenagers uh, and find that I relate more naturally to teenagers. So it's uh, it's a massive switch uh, in terms of energy level and mode um but it's brilliant it's it's good to kind of stretch that muscle a little bit brilliant but exhausting i, I recently <laughs> was complaining about being tired to my sister-in-law who has a one-year-old baby and she just gave me this look like you don't know tired oh. <laughs> i must say obviously this is a podcast that people can't see all three of you but you know you all look so fresh maybe it's the good lighting lots of coffee i'm not sure but it's three parents i'm sure you are all exhausted but you look fantastic um so it's great to have you here peter and uh, we're delighted to welcome our third member of the panel back to the show the legendary and i don't use that word lightly benny Carr. Benny's pronouns are she, her, and she joined us in season two in one of our most popular episodes in which we discussed intersectionality and curriculum, which if you haven't heard, we recommend you go back and give a listen. Benny and her wife have just become parents, and so we are hugely grateful to her for making the time for us today. Benny, how is life as a new parent treating you? Uh, Parenthood is exhausting. I'm sort of nodding here at at Peter's words. Um, It's been a week and a half with our two adopted daughters. Um, who are three and two. And that is a massive switch from, like Peter said, dealing with teenagers. And we are on a massive learning curve, but 
you know, we feel like a family. And I think that's the most important thing. It's two years in the making and, you know, we're here now. So I'm not going to complain too much. Amazing. I'm I'm so glad that all three of you are able to be here with us for this conversation. I mentioned in, earlier when I was talking to Peter that my sister-in-law has a baby, um, just turned one. And my sister also has a baby who just turned one. They were born within a couple of weeks of each other, which is really sweet. And it's so nice to spend time with them. But both of them, my sister and my sister-in-law, had quite different journeys into becoming parents. And I think all, all parents have different journeys into becoming parents. And specifically for LGBT parents, that journey can look a little bit different to maybe what we are used to hearing. So I wondered if any of you or all of you would be comfortable to share with us what your journey into becoming a parent was like. It was uh, two years of going through the adoption process. Um, Both my wife and I uh, really wanted children. We went down the route of RUI and IVF. um, And that was interesting in itself, you know, being two women, going to the London Women's Clinic um, and feeling a little bit out of our depths and, you know, lots of questions about parents and parenting and you know you're having to kind of make up the the narrative as you go along because you're not really sure what the right thing to say is Uh, and everyone was really lovely um but we did find it tricky because obviously um you know we had to pay for it and it was really expensive and it's actually quite hard to explain to employers you know that you and your female partner are going through IVF um, and you know, taking time off to do that, there's all sorts of questions to navigate there as well. And in the end, we decided to go down the route of adoption, and we went through the, all of the different stages. Um, and we found, you know, f- on the whole, it was fairly positive. But there were moments where we faced questions as LGBT parents um, that perhaps uh, heterosexual parents don't often get. Um, you know, around, particularly around, you know, who is going to be the male role model uh, for your children. Uh, We had that several times, Um, you know, questions about whether we would be able to look after a boy um, being two women. Um, And we had the added dimension of being a mixed race couple as well. So, you know, we went through that process, we navigated each stage. Um, So two years later, you know, we finally had our, our placement. Um, but I did feel like it was ups and downs that perhaps actually, if you are a straight couple, you probably wouldn't have got some of the questions that felt quite intrusive um, and possibly not very understanding. So, yeah, it was it was a long journey. Thank you, Benny. How about yourself, Peter? Uh, so we uh, also uh, have uh, become parents by adoption. Uh, we're kind of still in that process in a way. Uh, and Benny, I imagine you're the same. It's um, the difference in everyone knows what adoption is uh but very few people actually know how it works and i didn't uh starting the process at all we all have an idea of what the concept of adoption is we've all seen annie um but actually how do people adopt how are children adopted uh it was a lot to learn about and the first thing really happens with the decision to do it um when my husband and i got married we weren't set on being parents necessarily we'd been on different journeys Uh, I'd had an idea that I would kind of always wanted to be a dad since I was quite young and then gradually went off the idea Um, and my husband had kind of an opposite journey it took a while for us to meet in the middle um, and realize that it was something we definitely wanted to do Uh, for us that decision that realization of yeah we we want to be parents together came just as I was also doing my teacher training so I was in the middle of a career switch uh, and 
in my PGCE placement, uh, when we first made the phone call uh, to an adoption agency, uh, that was December 2020. So it's been a, a similar length of time, um, the whole process. Uh, I was very, I'm very pleased. Um, I was rightly advised give it a bit of time. Uh, the adoption process involves a lot of paperwork. Uh, it's quite intense. And so does teacher training. So uh, we waited until I'd completed my teacher training. We in the process moved house. So I started a new career. We moved house. We realized the house we would kind of dead set on, we can start our family here. We suddenly thought, wait a minute, where are we going to if the child's sleeping in that room, where are we going to hang up our clothes in winter? Where are we going to, where's the dog going to be? How do we separate? Um, how do we run a family? So uh, a lot of change uh, and quite a long process through that. Um, and we're now in this final stage. I mean, everything, there are so many different stages and everyone feels like, oh, okay, we've made it now. We've been approved. We've, we've made it. We're going to be parents or we found a child. Great. We've done that that match that needs to happen. We now have our child living in the house with us. We very much feel like dads, but the adoption still isn't complete. I still have family members who say, oh, now that you've adopted him, but actually he's still not legally ours yet. So we're in the placement stage um, and we're awaiting um, the right time to submit our application uh, to the courts for the adoption order. Thanks for sharing that, Peter. Claire, how is it for you? So interestingly, um, although I'm in much the same situation now with my husband, first time I've said that since getting married on Tuesday, who is a trans man, we're looking at how we want to have children. My previous marriage, where I had my child, who is almost six now, from the outside probably looked like a heterosexual um, partnership. So I won't go into how we had children, but very straightforward. Um, you know, there was no no IVF, um, no sort of complicating factors. Um, so for me, it wasn't so much the, the questions that um, other queer couples may have faced, but it's the assumptions that were made. And I found that really, really difficult. Um, and I'd sort of I'd been through a process of really kind of finding myself and, and coming out, you know, multiple times, um, coming out at work, you know, big sort of scary things. And then there's nothing like pregnancy to sort of squash you back into this little heteronormative box. And all of those assumptions that I'd sort of spent the past few years fighting and pushing against really, really came back really strongly. And I think that's what I found most difficult. Thank you, Claire, for sharing that. And there's so many things in there I think we could, we're we going to discuss over the rest of this episode. And thank you all for sharing your experience, because obviously for every LGBT couple, having children is a different experience. It's a long experience. And I don't think people often have an understanding of the, the sort of complexity and kind of the emotional tax and toll some of those things can take. I'd like to pick up on one of the points you made there, Claire, which is about some of the assumptions that are made about LGBT parents. Um, and I was reflecting on this in the day, actually, Benny, because you put a tweet. I think you said something like, right, day five, how many times can we say we're not sisters? Yes, there are daughters and so on. And I think back to when I bought my house and my partner, like estate agents showing us around and they just couldn't compute why two men were looking at a house together. Like, uh, uh, are, you, are you brothers or who's going to have which bedroom and where are you going to bring your girlfriends back? And it's just like, honestly, in this millennium, can you not work out that we're a gay couple? So perhaps if we just think about the idea for a few minutes about the idea of some perhaps some of the assumptions that are made about LGBT parents and, and you know, couples. Um, Benny, do you want to kind of elaborate a bit more about your experience the other day? Yeah, it's um, it's an odd one because, you know, I think you're so involved in the adoption process that you don't really think about the after. 
um, and how people will react to you. And as much as we've not had any hostility, apart from one comment on Twitter from that, the picture I posted of of my children's hands and an, announcing the adoption, um, you know, it's it's more the fact that when you're walking around and you're a mixed race couple and you've got two children um, who are also look quite different, you know, in terms of colouring, one's very fair, one's more kind of olive skinned. Um, the assumption is one is mine and that the other one belongs to my partner. Um, and there's never that kind of uh, pause or reflection that says these might be their children and they might be a couple. And so, you know, little things when you go, we went to Sudbury Hall and we were just getting our tickets and going in and it's all, are they sisters? Yes, they are sisters. Oh, okay. And then looking at us without kind of saying anything and trying to work out the dynamic. And then we find ourselves in that situation where you have to come out and you have to come out a lot when you're an LGBT person anyway. Um, But there's this added layer now of saying, no, we are together. We are married. They are our children. And I just found myself suddenly kind of realising how many times I'm going to have to do that. And, you know, the fact that I don't know if it would be easier if we were both the same race. There's an element of me that thinks that possibly it would be, um, but we're not. And, you know, it's always going to be the assumption that we are friends with our individual children and we are going to have to correct that. Um, And I think we sort of rolled our eyes a little bit and realised we're just going to have to run with it because we could get really angry about it. And I am annoyed about it, but I recognise that's the world that we live in. It is really heteronormative. Um, and our responsibility is to, I suppose, educate people one person at a time, um, at one situation at a time, so that, you know, the girls grow up and they don't have to explain who their mums are, who their parents are, who their, their carers are. So yeah, it, it was it was quite a, an interesting few days certainly at the beginning thanks Bernie. and like you say it's one of those things you perhaps don't think about because your mind's been so set on the process of adoption that next step is perhaps something you're not considered i mean claire about it from your perspective yeah i think first of all just to say like to echo what what benny said i think race shows up in a far greater way sometimes um because um because my husband's trans we kind of are perceived as a couple um most of the time but when we go out as a family um, my son's white, as am I, and my partner's black. And the amount of time that he's assumed to just not be with us, um, you know, someone will stand between us on an escalator, for example, because people are still not used to interracial couples and interracial families in, you know, 2023, which is, it, you know, it feels shocking that that's the case. Those heteronormative expectations are just so huge, you know, so my son's really proud of his family, which is lovely. And, you know, he, we co-parent really effectively, um, myself and my ex and um, my ex's partner and my husband. And my son will happily explain to anyone, you know, who who's in his family. And there's a there's a mix of sort of pronouns and things that people don't expect. And they almost question him. And it's like, well, he, he may only be five but this has been his experience for five years so he is very certain um and just not trusting these kids who've grown up in these families to actually know things better than the the adults around who've sort of just met us five minutes ago thank you claire and peter you were nodding along as well as we were sort of sharing those stories have you had a similar experience yeah i think um it's uh, it's a mixture of different things uh when it comes to uh bringing your queer family out into the world uh and sometimes it can be 
the experiences that you have. We've been very lucky that we haven't had any negativity. It's been very positive um, from all angles so far, but it doesn't take away a fear that is there. Um, there is, we're approaching, um, due to my son's developmental delay, uh, he'll be starting school in September um, from reception. Uh, so we are going through that process. We've identified the school and uh, I found a fear uh, or a kind of uh, anxiety around the thought of other parents, not other children, um, but other parents. And it was a question that I asked when uh, looking around different primary schools. Uh, and we will be the first same sex parents that this primary school uh, will have, at least under current leadership. The attitudes have always been brilliant but it's still there, um, just being aware that you never know and you're, you're going to send your little person out into the world uh, and, and hope that things are going to be fine and, and they won't always be and they usually will be and, and we know all of this. Um, but those attitudes are there, uh, whether it's in looks uh, or comments or however it might be. And it can also be from further back. Um, there have been a few well-meaning comments that I maybe wouldn't make to someone who was adopting or to uh, an LGBT plus parent, uh, but everyone's been very well-meaning. We did have fairly early on when we first began the adoption process, um, my husband told a good friend of his um, who is a gay man uh, that we were going to be adopting. And his response was a little bit taken aback and a little bit awkward and saying, oh, that's great. I'm happy for you. I just couldn't do that. I don't think it would be fair on the child. And that's coming from a gay man. Um, and so that's still there. And I don't, in many ways, I don't judge him for that. I think it speaks to experiences that he has had. Uh, and there's another layer to that as a teacher, hearing that and approaching schools and balancing that, looking for a school for my child as a teacher myself, knowing the way that I conduct myself in my classroom and around my school as an, as an openly gay teacher. Um, but it all really circles back to why the work that you both do at this podcast is so important and, uh, and the way kind of the way that education um, feeds into the experiences of everyone. I completely agree, Peter, in terms of the role that education has here, because just in this conversation around assumptions, we've talked about the different sexual or romantic orientations or gender identities or, or different race that can make up an each individual family. And it demonstrates the importance of that education in school, that each family is different. And, you know, on, on our panel today, all of us are educators. So you will all be aware to different extents of the constant conversation around age appropriateness when we talk about this education in schools, that must be really difficult as an LGBT parent. It must be really difficult to hear these conversations around age appropriateness when what we're talking about is the reality of your families. Claire, have you experienced that kind of tension? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's that age old thing, isn't it? That when you're talking about heterosexuality, you seem to be talking about families and marriage and everyday life. And when you're talking about um, LGBT people, that must be something to do with sex, which is not appropriate to talk about in school. 
you know, so people have no issue whatsoever talking to toddlers about boyfriends and girlfriends, you know, when they're assuming heterosexuality. And so the the whole age appropriateness thing, it, it really gets to me because, you know, what we're asking for is just that our families can be discussed the same way that anyone else's is, you know, if we decide that it's not age appropriate to teach about um, trans identities in year one, for example, my my son has two trans parents out of the four people co-parenting him. You know, are they going to send him out of the room so that he doesn't mention it because it's not appropriate? You know, and, and he's he's very aware of what being trans means. And it really bothers me that, you know, we're saying these conversations aren't age appropriate. Um but what you're really saying is these families shouldn't exist, you know, because we're bringing children up in these families. And so it's really scary. And I think it's it's actually a lot more dangerous than most people assume um, to say, you know, this isn't age appropriate. And it is because we've got children being brought up and they're all absolutely fine. It's, I completely agree with Claire around the assumption that when we talk about LGBT life it is about sexuality and actually lgbt life is as mundane as anybody else's life you know and and i um i i think i've become quite conscious of the conversation you know looking at our two girls and knowing that they call us mummy and mama and knowing that they will go into a school setting where people will be talking about mummy and daddy or just mummy or just daddy or you know whatever, whatever variety there is um, and the fact that for them, they will have only ever known mummy and mama. You know, their foster carers were two women. Um, and so they haven't had very much experience of heterosexual life. Um, but how my, my concern is, you know, when they're having those conversations, will somebody turn around another child or a teacher saying, oh, well, you know, that's wrong or, um, you know, or that's not usual. Um, and how will any school broach that subject without feeling like they're not being age appropriate? Um, and we know that there's been situations, particularly at primary level, where there's been an attempt to talk about at age appropriate level, um, families, lots of different uh, types of families, and there's been protests. And, you know, you can't say that to kids because of all of the things that Claire said. Um, and so, you know, my my anxiety around this is, will a school be brave enough to say these are all the different types of families without worrying that somebody will come back and say that's not age appropriate it is a reality and it's a reality not just in terms of lgbt um families but also in terms of race because people will often talk about race you know when do we start talking about racism um to children because some of them if you're old enough to experience it you're old enough to know about it and so it's 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 full i think it, it's it's a bit of a quagmire to be honest and i think it takes brave steps from educators to be able to say this is who we are this is how we're going to talk about families and relationships and um you know who are your significant carers um without worrying about what's going to happen externally um and that's what i'd look for in a school setting yeah that's really interesting and actually it's going to kind of lead me to my next question which actually might feel a bit contrary um, based upon the things that we've just shared but I'm going to put my academic hat on a little bit here and look at this this from a kind of academic lens because kind of queer theory and queerness itself is often about kind of challenging and dismantling heteronormativity and some of those like societal expectations 
And having children is often seen as part of heteronormativity. It's often seen as kind of the ultimate form of citizenship. Uh, so my question, perhaps controversially, I'm not sure, um, but how does becoming a parent change or not change one's queer identity or LGBT identity? I think there is definitely almost a sense of, um, yeah, being queer as opposed to just saying I'm pansexual or, you know, however anyone identifies. But by deliberately using the word queer, there's sort of an almost subversion to it. And, you know, for a long time, I used the word queer for myself because I wasn't following kind of those expectations. And I was I was in a polyam relationship for a long time. So um, I had multiple partners. Um, I had two very long term partners um, sort of for a period of five years. So, you know, that wasn't insignificant in my life at all that you know that lasted a a really long time um that's not why my ex and I split so there was this whole sense of you know being being queer as in challenging challenging norms somehow um and I'm now in a monogamous relationship I've just got married we're thinking about having a child and you know we did actually have this conversation the other day you know, this doesn't seem very queer, does it? It's all, you know, very, um, are we just playing into those kind of heteronormative stereotypes? And um, I think ultimately it just comes down to you do what's right for you. And But we've got this added lens of sort of feeling like we have to represent the queer community in some way. And I think so many of us will have this um, not queer enough feeling sometimes. But actually sort of choosing to um, settle down, as it were, you know, have children, um, if that's who you are and that's what you want to do, you know, that's as valid as as any other. Thank you, Claire. How about you, Peter? I just uh, just loved what Claire was saying there about not feeling queer enough and feeling uh, anxious or uncomfortable about not feeling queer enough. And that is definitely something it's something that reminded me a lot, actually, of planning uh, my husband and my wedding um it was over five years ago now but I had a real sense there of should do I even want to be doing this should I be doing this uh this is the peak of heteronormativity to decide to enter into this um this arrangement this institution of marriage um but at the same time the privilege to be able to get married was also so weighty um, and so exciting. uh, And I have absolutely no regrets, but uh, absolutely then deciding to get married and then move to a a rural village and set up house and then have a child. It feels on paper, incredibly straight. Um, So I think it's, uh, I think, I think it's a very common feeling uh, and how we remain queer is through all the ways that we navigate that. And as, as Claire said, really just echoing what Claire said, um, it's if it's what feels true to you, uh, then it is you. It is part of who you are. And But both you and Claire have so beautifully described some of these tensions and complexities. And Claire, do you want to come back in on that point? Yeah, whilst Peter was talking, I was just thinking, well, you know, we, we talk about sort of being queer, being living outside of these norms. But, you know, that's because literally we were not allowed to live inside them for so long. And I think, you know, we 
we need to remember that. So, um, you know, it's actually quite radical for us to be getting married and having children because we we weren't allowed to previously. Absolutely. I mean, these are disruptive acts in a way, aren't they? Um, how about you, Benny? Do you want to add anything to this question? I, I've been reflecting and, and listening. And I think my identity is someone who's Asian. I think I spoke about this before, that actually my Asianness gets seen before my gayness. Um, and so, you know, the my identity is kind of wrapped up in two different things. And so when when I think about having children or thought about having children then and had children through the adoption process, um, I didn't feel a sense of uh, betrayal of my identity because my identity was diluted in lots of dif- different directions. Um, but I am conscious that, you know, listening to the conversation, um, that the act of parenting is not um specific to people who are heterosexual queer people lgbt people have those instincts too um just because you fall in love with somebody who is uh same sex um or trans or, or queer or non-binary doesn't mean you don't have a, a feel that you want to raise children um you know my my instinct to mother didn't switch off the moment i decided um, well, I realised rather that um, I was bisexual, and you know the that I think is a massive misconception. You know, I think and I think a lot of gay women face that that you know, well, if you want kids, that must mean that you're not that gay actually. You know, because that's a really heterosexual thing to want. Lots of gay women, lots of gay men want children and feel that parenting instinct. So that kind of sense that they are mutually exclusive really bothers me. Um, you know, we are allowed to have those feelings as LGBT people. Um, and yeah, it, I think it's been true for, for a very long time. And let's not forget that just because it wasn't in plain sight, queer people have parented for a very, very long time. Um, it just may not have been as visible. Um, and so, yes, it's a revolutionary act to kind of do the things because we're allowed to do them, as, as Claire said. Um, but it's certainly not a new phenomenon. Um, we just haven't seen it in this way before. I feel like I've been quieter in this episode than any episode I've ever recorded because I'm I'm thinking and reflecting and, and learning, I think, a lot as well. And I, I try and put myself in the shoes of, of kind of the audience of this podcast, the people who will be listening. And I think, I imagine, a lot of people will also be learning and reflecting a lot as well. The majority of our audience, people who will be listening to this conversation, will be educators themselves. And one of the kind of values of Pride and Progress is that we assume positive intent. So I'm assuming that the majority of people listening to this podcast are educators with positive intentions who want our schools to be inclusive spaces. So with that in mind, what can educators, teachers or or schools do to make their schools more inclusive, specifically for LGBT parents and families? I have a really strong memory of coming out at school. Um, when I worked in South Oxfordshire, and I, I may have told this story before on the previous podcast, I'm not sure. Um, but I remember the reaction or being scared about the reaction of coming out to the children at the school in an assembly. And one of the ripple effects was a parent, um, um, uh, a gay parent, writing a note and saying, thank you for doing that, because I didn't know if, whether I'd be welcome um, as a same-sex parent 
um and you know the fact that you've told the children that you're gay and you know that that's created an opening for me to be who I am you know I feel like actually the school understands that there might be gay parents and that that is something that you you are inclusive of um and I remember feeling really really humbled by that because I thought I I didn't anticipate that at all I thought I'd get questions from the kids I thought I might get pushback from parents um but to have that sense of affirmation from another gay person to say thank you for doing that that felt really really powerful and you know a school doesn't have to do grand gestures to create inclusive environments you know it's um how you communicate your values around families relationships and respect and uh, acceptance and celebration in schools it's how you market your school you know who are you um what what do you talk about what flags are up you know if that's something as surface as that might be might be um useful um and then of course there's the curriculum you know you think about how the curriculum deals with relationships and then later on sexuality and the history of sexuality and the history of of lgbt plus people i think that all ties into creating that inclusive environment because then you know as sue sanders says you know that actual act of usualizing is is hugely important um and that's that's you know the very least you can hope for that we are made usual in our environments thank you benny so much wonderful advice there how about yourself peter it's nothing new to say uh in fact i'm sure it's been said on the podcast before um but as one step that any school of any kind can do to support all lgbt plus people is put it on the website uh in any way it doesn't need to be a massive banner it doesn't need to be i mean those things are lovely love a big pride celebration all of those things but um have it there in your policy have it there on the website uh particularly as you're scrolling through various different schools websites looking for your child's future school as a teacher looking for somewhere that i might want to work it can be one line in a, a description in, in an ethos somewhere on the website it doesn't need to be a massive thing but that will glow to me and instantly say great i'm welcome here um so I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of going, well, of course, and 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 rightly, again, assuming positive intent and, and assuming that seeing the good in people uh, is a great attitude to have. Um, but just having the words there to put your mind at ease um, so that schools don't fall into the trap of assuming that people assume that they are inclusive, uh, because unfortunately, in 2023, with uh, in air quotes, debates raging. Um, we, we can't always assume that, unfortunately. Thank you, Peter. And how about you, Claire? I think it's just about, we've already mentioned a couple of times in this episode about, um, you know, having to come out over and over and over again. Um, if you just make some small changes to language, um, you can make it easier so that we're not having to correct people all the time um because you know most most of us are sort of quite happy to talk about ourselves and our lives but it, it's exhausting to keep having to do that so um you know it'd be nice to not have to say oh actually um and you know especially where we're talking about parents and children you know those are already gender neutral words um so your admission forms for example parent one parent two 
because actually writing mother and father on them wouldn't work for any of the three of us here today and we're all in very very different situations and different relationships um you know we're not saying get rid of these words I call myself a mother I am a mother but you know the form can say parent because that covers mother and father and non-binary parents um and you know same for for children you know we can use the word child instead of always son stroke daughter you know there is a gender neutral word that exists already um and just as well remembering that this applies to staff um because i think a lot of the time when we talk about lgbt inclusion in schools we're always thinking about students um, quite rightly, you know, we don't want to forget them, but we're always focused on the students. Very occasionally we discuss um, parents, but very rarely do we think about the staff. Um, so thinking about things like maternity and paternity policies, adoption leave policies. And, you know, one of the things that um, I do with my work, with the MTPT project is just try to make sure that schools are as inclusive as possible from the outset so that people aren't having to go to HR holding a policy that isn't fit for purpose saying can you reword this to fit my situation um, because if you can pick up a policy and you read it and it reflects your situation as a queer person about to embark on having a family there's just you know that sense of relief is enormous. Just to add to that um you know, that idea about policy and practice around um, adoption and parent leave and, and all of that is so gendered. And when I've been going through this process, you know, I had to describe my time off as paternity leave because on Sims, it's paternity leave. And it's such an easy shift. You know, adoption leave can be put on there. Um, so people will say to me, are you taking maternity leave? And I have to say, no, I'm taking paternity leave because it's the two weeks that I get as the the other parent I suppose um and you know little things like uh making sure that adoption pay matches maternity pay and that policy is reflected because I had to have a bit of a conversation around the fact that I had different pay as an adoptive parent um to somebody who was going on maternity leave and why was that the case um and that had to go to the borough and back again so, yeah, I think, you know, for staff who are going through this process, um, it's a lot to navigate when you're going through everything else. So that that bit is so easily fixed. And I'd love to see that. Potentially also worth saying there are so many things about being a queer parent and navigating these various things um, that would be great for straight parents. Uh, and actually, if straight parents to be listening, uh, any advice that we can give is take the time to look into the shared parental leave policy because it can be really beneficial dads don't have to just have the two weeks and that be it and that can be good for everyone it can be good for the children it can be good for the relationship and then likewise the school reflecting that in the way that you're speaking about families and speaking to children about parenting by not assuming that it's mum who's always going to sort out the food or dad who's always going to cut the grass, that's going to be more inclusive for kids with stay-at-home dads, kids with single parents. It's not, there are elements of queer parenting and queer life, as there is with all queer life, uh, that would be great for straight people and are actually good for all of us. And it 
it kind of comes down a little bit to shifting off some old misogyny that we all still carry around in our language and in our systems. Thank you, Peter. And I want to thank all three of you so much for sharing so generously this afternoon. My head's spinning a little bit, actually. There are so many things I'd not thought about on this topic. You know, I'm not a parent myself, and there are so many perspectives and angles I've never really considered. So this is one of those episodes I'll be listening back to more than one time, and we'll be doing some further reading and research around. So again, thank you so much, all of you, for your time this afternoon. Uh, Our final question, of course, on our parent-themed edition of the podcast is, what's the best thing about being an LGBT plus parent or carer? So Claire, do you want to kick us off? Just going back to what we were talking about with queerness earlier, it's giving my son permission to be whoever he wants to be. Um, So we're having a party um, tomorrow to celebrate the wedding and he's wearing a dress because he wants to wear a dress. It's got absolutely nothing to do with gender identity. Um, He just goes into a clothes shop and I allow him to look at everything, whichever section it's in, and pick what he wants. And sometimes he's really stereotypically masculine and other times he wants to wear a dress. And um, I just love the freedom that being a queer parent brings. Such a great answer. Thanks, Claire. How about you, Peter? Really very similar and reflecting on things that we've already said, but it is the freedom that comes with not being bound by gender norms, which, of course, everyone can experience that. But the feeling of no one's going to come and tell me that's mum's job or no one can really tell me, oh, this is a mum and baby group or this is this is a mum's thing because I am the representative there so it's uh, it's having that freedom to paint with all those different colours and explore all those roles and be the fullest parent for my child that I can be. Beautiful thank you Peter and finally Benny. I think for me it's knowing that my children will grow up with a sense of empathy a sense of understanding of difference a sense of understanding of how their identity is really important, that that they don't have to choose or fit themselves into any boxes, like we've said. Um, You know, I I often talk about the benefits of difference, you know, and what that gives you in terms of your skills. They will grow up knowing how to be more sensitive about these things because they have two mums. And as much as I anticipate there will be difficulties, I know that as they grow into themselves, um, I don't know if they will have that sense of having to really question who they are because they will be growing up more authentically. Um, And that's not a criticism of anyone else. It's just a sense of when you've got that lived experience, you know, that is your, your um, way of looking at the world. And so being an LGBT parent is such a privilege because it allows you to raise children in, in, in a way that allows, I suppose, gives us something that we didn't have as children. Thank you all so much for answering that question. And I I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I I mentioned earlier how quiet I've been during this podcast. And I think that's because I found this particular episode a really reflective conversation for me personally. For a long time now, when people have asked me whether I would want children in the future or whether I would want to start a family, I've always responded quite quickly by saying no. And usually with some kind of joke. And today's conversation, listening to you all speak, has made me realise today that the reason that I've been saying no isn't because I don't want that, and it isn't because I don't think I would be a good parent. It's because I had some deep-rooted misunderstanding that that wasn't open to me as a queer non-binary person. (laughs) 
Hello friends, I want to thank you for listening to this special episode exploring LGBT plus parents and families. And I want to thank you for listening and supporting Pride and Progress generally. We have some exciting news. Our book, Pride and Progress, Making Schools LGBT plus inclusive spaces is now out and available. All of the details to get your own copy are in the show notes. And if you want to take things a little bit further, we're excited to be hosting our first full day CPD programme in the autumn term of 2023. Now, the programme is designed for primary and secondary educators. And throughout the day, we'll be trying to build your confidence, giving you the vocabulary and the strategies that you need to meaningfully approach LGBT plus inclusion in your setting, no matter what stage of your career you're in. All of the details, again, you can find them in the show notes. I really hope to see you there. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be really grateful if you could leave a review or a five-star rating, as this helps other educators to find these stories. If you want to continue the conversation, to comment or to ask a question, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Pride Progress. You can also find other ways to contact us in the show notes. Thanks for listening. 